Welcome to Let's Talk Loyalty, an industry podcast for loyalty marketing professionals. I'm Paula Thomas, the founder of Let's Talk Loyalty. Today's show is hosted by my colleague, Amanda Cromhout, the founder of Truth, an international loyalty consultancy firm based in Cape Town, South Africa. If you work in loyalty marketing, make sure to join Let's Talk Loyalty every Tuesday, every Wednesday, and every Thursday to learn the latest ideas from loyalty experts around the world. Let's Talk Loyalty is inviting you to come and join us to talk all about loyalty. We want to know what are the biggest challenges you face to capture the loyalty of your customers as we approach 2023. In partnership with Collinson, Let's Talk Loyalty is planning a live session on LinkedIn to talk about creating customer loyalty in the year ahead. I'm inviting all of you listening to share with me the burning questions and key topics you'd like to hear us cover in a live discussion. Simply drop me an email. It's paula at letstalkloyalty.com. Then we'll pick the most popular ideas and questions and talk them through on our Let's Talk Loyalty live event this November, powered by Collinson. My email address again is paula at letstalkloyalty.com. Please do send over your questions and ideas and then join us as we talk loyalty live together for the first time. Hello and welcome to Let's Talk Loyalty. Today we have a very special discussion with Dr. Shawfall Islam. Shawfall is the CEO of B Data Solutions and comes into this industry with a PhD in psychology. I've had the pleasure of working with Shawfall and his team in Indonesia many years ago, and I was absolutely fascinated by the quality of insight and data analytics capability of his company at the time called Stream Intelligence. Through our discussion today, we hear about how he applies his psychology experience to work through the data representation of human behavior, which we all know in the loyalty world, this is an imperative. In our discussion, we also focus on how data and automation can only get you so far. When you're dealing with humans, you need humans to understand what we are strategically all trying to achieve. Simply put, it's one of those interviews which could have gone on for hours and hours. I hope you enjoy the show. So, Shawful, welcome to Let's Talk Loyalty. It's absolutely fantastic to have you with us. Thank you, Amanda. It's nice to be here. Yeah, it's really, I'm really excited about today's discussion because for a couple of reasons. Number one, I've known you for many years and always enjoyed the work we've done together. But secondly, I know what's behind um, today's discussion, and I'm super excited that we can share that with the listeners of Let's Talk Loyalty. So I think um, as we want to start off with the traditional Let's Talk Loyalty question, please share with everyone, what is your favorite loyalty program? Um, that, that's a really good question. I mean, obviously, when you work in the loyalty space, you, you you sort of look at a lot of loyalty programs. But my favorite has to be the Qatar Airways uh, Privileged Club. Um, I've always loved like, um, you know, airline loyalty programs, but I, I found the Qatar one quite nice, especially the execution of the comms and then, and then all the sort of things you could get with their points. That's great. I think I... Um... 
in my in my question, I also answered airline. And actually, a previous um, recording I did, the response was also a frequent flyer program. So obviously, they're doing something right. So even though they pioneered loyalty so ever many years ago, it's great to hear we're still all loving them. So yeah, lovely. So Shawfall. I've known you for many years in the data environment. I've had the privilege of um, our company, Truth, working with your company and your uh, brain child amongst data analytics. And that's why I really wanted to talk to you today. So I think it, what would be super useful for the listeners is to understand a bit more about you. You're now the CEO and founder um, of your business, B Data Solutions. Tell us a little bit about the role and about the company, B Data Solutions. Yeah, so we, you know, B Data Solutions is um, a, a data company. We do everything from data strategy, data engineering, data analytics, and data science. Um, and essentially, you know, if clients have data problems, that's where we come in and, and help. And you can imagine a lot of clients who have loyalty programs, um, you know, get these loyalty programs up and running. They've got great welcome programs and CRM programs, but then they need sort of help with the data side, whether it's doing the analysis and providing insights, or whether it's just moving data around. And connecting sources that they haven't connected before. Um, so that's that's essentially what we do at B Data with, like I said, end-to-end -end data uh, solutions provider. Great, and it's a slightly different company than the company I um, worked with you on some of your clients way back. So I think what would be useful for us to understand a little bit about, um, if I think about your background. So for all of our listeners, the reason I so wanted to talk to Shawfall today. He's actually Dr. Shawfall, and his doctorate comes from a degree, a master's, and a PhD, all in psychology. So you can imagine how this really resonates to us as loyalty practitioners, because at the end of the day, customers and psychology, we need to understand that. So I think Shawfall, talk to us a bit about that, because you also obviously recognize that, that connection. And how has it brought you to where you are now, really leading the field in some data solutions for your clients? Yeah, so uh, as you mentioned, my, my background is in psychology and I have a PhD in psychology. And one of the first things or one of the things I did in my PhD uh, or my thesis was to predict why children have accidents. So I was always interested in data being a representation of human behavior. OK, and so the idea was that you would um, look look at all this data and infer human behavior from it. And then obviously, with a lot of the advanced statistical techniques, you can actually then predict it. So that was what my PhD was about. How do you predict why children have accidents? Um, and if if you're a parent, um, I'm sorry to say, but you know, you, you, it's about 60% of the reasons why children have accidents is based on how you supervise your child uh, when they're <laughs> with you. <laughs> really? Oh, wow. Yeah, it is it's slightly over 60%. Um, but how I got into it, so I obviously worked in the NHS and government, the NHS being the UK's National Health Service. And, you know, originally I went in to do sort of like, you know, the primary type research where you do surveys and stuff, but I was more interested in the data that was collected by systems already. So in the NHS, for example, they had a patient administration system. So if you came in, you'd you know tell the receptionist why you're here, you know the, the details about yourself. And I was interested in analysing that data. And then I moved into government, where I sort of looked at similar data. So you know benefits data, council tax, uh, national insurance data, that, those kind of stuff. And then I moved to the commercial sector, where I got introduced to loyalty data. And what was fascinating is that it is um, you know from a psychology point of view, you're you're actually looking at these data points 
points and trying to you know map behaviors and predict behaviors but then also infer intent right so the idea mm -hmm. is that you look at these mm -hmm. behaviors and you say well why are they doing these kind of stuff and that is brilliant for loyalty right because if you start seeing people doing certain type of behavior you start going oh maybe th their their mission or their purpose for doing that behavior let's take like a, a starbucks or a mcdonald's you know you might find people in the morning buying coffee and stuff and going into work so you realize well the, we see that behavior consistently let's say four or five times a week uh, during the weekday so they're buying breakfast as they're going into work so there's a mission there's a an intent and a purpose behind that so that's really why i'm i'm sort of in the space that i am because even though i'm analyzing this data and everybody thinks oh you you must have a computer science background or a maths or a stats background um i i don't actually see data as the end goal i see data as a representation of the behaviors that uh, humans and people do and, and like i said in loyalty program that's brilliant because you actually can track someone across uh, multiple time frames across multiple uh, products and services um and as a psychologist that's quite interesting because then you're trying to infer well you know what are the different types of behaviors that you're seeing what are the different types of groups that you're seeing and and you know what are they doing and ultimately how do you um predict predict what they're going to do to make sure that the loyalty program is more successful I absolutely love that. The fact you started off with predicting why children have accidents and putting <laughs> the blame 60% of it onto the parents through to predicting and looking at my behaviors about how I'm going to get my coffee at Starbucks. So absolutely <laughs> fantastic. And there must be a correlation between that as well. Starbucks usage <laughs> and <laughs> children's accidents somewhere in there. Uh, that's incredible. I, you know, I did actually uh, remember you talking about being involved in the NHS. I didn't realize you then went into the public sector before the commercial environment. So um, I can absolutely see how that pathway has brought you to mapping behaviors for customer loyalty and then inferring intent what lovely like way of describing it so i think then if we're looking at inferring intent you know if we all look at our customer database we've all got a distribution of customers some are super profitable or super loyal and others are what the sort of rudimentary description of the long tail of a database yeah. what well, from your point of view let's talk about like the most loyal customers um what are you seeing there that will be interesting to understand the most loyal, the top end of the, of the distribution curve? Yeah, so so that is really interesting. So whether it's the top one percent for like you know really high value um, sort of low luxury products, or whether it's the top five ten percent for more sort of mass products, I've always found that that top tier of customers. So you know usually they'll generate you know if it's like the top one percent they'll generate a twenty five percent of your revenue, or the top ten percent will generate fifty percent of your revenue. You what I found interestingly um, is that they're always you're always able to stretch them. That's the first thing. So whenever I work with the CRM team, you know the loyalty team, and and they're they're talking about oh which segment should we start trying to you know get more of the share of wallet that group even though they spend a lot team seem to still have more money to spend with you and you know it doesn't matter loyalty program I worked across and, and you know Amanda I've worked quite a few yeah uh, I always find that that group you can always stretch you know as long as they're not maxed out in terms of physically being able to come to you um but you can sort of stretch them so if there's more expensive upsell products for example or if there's yeah. more basket of products that you could sell in that same interaction um then it's possible to to stretch them even in food I mean that's another interesting thing I found like you'd think that oh you wouldn't be able to stretch them because how much more can they eat but what they end up doing is you know you can start 
bundling things and they start buying bigger bundles or they'll start buying um, larger, uh, you know, food packages or, or like meals, those kind of stuff. So it, it is interesting that that I see I see that 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 group and, and you would and one of the things is when, when I first got into sort of loyalty and analytics and loyalty for being a psychologist, I was very skeptical about can humans actually be loyal to an entity to a brand, you know. But if you take the behavior itself, if you take away the underlying psychological emotions around being loyal, the behavior suggests that people are loyal. You know, you incentivize yeah. them to come or you give them a, or even it, I found even non-incentivizing these sort of highly loyal customers uh, still gets them to come. You just need to communicate them with the right message at the right time. Um, and, you know, a lot of the analytics we do, you know, now leverages sort of machine learning. So we're able to really customize, you know, what gets sent to which um, segment, even sub-segments within those highly loyal customers. That last piece, I mean, everything you said was super interesting, but I think that's really powerful for everyone to understand that you don't actually have to always incentivize your most loyal mm. customers, just communicating well or engaging at the right time because that everyone falls into that trap of having to throw yeah. margin at, at, at the group. But also I have, you've said something quite different than I've heard in other circles. So it's lovely to hear that even the very top segment, there's a way of stretching some level of spend or contribution. So that's really yeah. great to hear, even as you say, as bundling or upselling. Mm. Yeah. So let's let's flip this on its head a little bit. What do you see at the opposite end of the distribution curve? Let's have a chat about the the less loyal yeah. customers. Yeah, I mean they're an interesting bunch, and you can and, and I always look at that. I've always seen them as like the the easiest way to like get more revenue in in a loyalty program because you know they're really infrequent, right? So we we look at loyalty program whether it's somewhat like a department store where you might get visits once every three, four, five months, or whether it's a, a, a you know in terms of sort of food and. Uh, restaurants and stuff yeah. where you might see someone once a month or something they're really hard there's multiple groups in that so there's one group who would join and I think they joined because it was something that was being promoted at the time but they have no loyalty to your brand so they just happen to be your brand they happen to be a loyalty program and they joined and I found that that you, you can identify that group because no matter what you do and I've seen people really really incentivized like even make a loss with that group they don't come back because then that's not part of their natural um, sort of behaviors to come back but then you do see those people who are sort of less frequent which suggests that they are probably you know shopping elsewhere for similar products and if you can incentivize them correctly i mean i'm always wary of uh providing too much incentives because then they're they're like what we call like coupon hunters and bargain hunters coming in you know uh, because yeah. they've got a coupon they're going to come in uh, but there are there is a group who you know with the right sort of timing of the message you can reactivate them um and, and we have found that with some some of the some of our clients so one of our clients is sort of fast food and we've, we've sort of seen people historically have a behavior and then it's sort of um so they become very infrequent and you know they, they, they but just the timely reminder understanding why they used to come to you just timely reminder can reactivate them um but yeah but it, i mean i find that, that that group can be as big as 60 percent in some loyalty programs um you know where you will only see them once uh, within your active window whatever that active window is um and Actually, you know, you'd be very hard pressed to get 50, yeah, probably about 50% of them to reactivate easily uh, without some sort of really um, uh, lucrative, um, attractive offer, yeah. should we say. 
But even that, that's a lot. Like, wow, 50%. Like, I think any of us would be super excited to see a 50% yeah. response rate on a campaign. I know. I know. I mean, it's not necessarily the campaign, but across a window of time of activity, yeah. you know, uh, trying to get them back. But yeah, you'll be, you know, and also when, whenever we do like the modeling, so our clients will always say, well, you know, who should we target and what kind of stuff? They seem to be the easiest to model for like incremental revenue, like I said, because if you've got a massive base of people who you only see once in your active window, and you say to yourself, if I can get 20% of them come back one more time, that's an increase of X amount yeah. in revenue. And it's like quite big, like five, 6% increase in revenue for some of these clients. But they are really hard to get back. And also, because the data, from this from an analytical point of view, because they've only like visited once or very infrequently, the data points are very few. Mm. So therefore, it's really hard to model their behavior and understand what their intent or mission or purpose is, is with shopping with you. Of course, yeah. And actually, we see so many clients of ours who spend so much on their their direct marketing budget without proper analytics that they actually send every SMS to every mm. single person on the database. And as you said at the start of this question was, so many customers do actually sign up once and actually have no interest in your brand whatsoever thereafter. And you could be wasting such a lot of marketing money on that on those campaigns. Yeah. So I can immediately, even if it's not an incremental performance, it would be in cost savings if you if we could just dig underneath the the skin of all of this. Yeah. So you mentioned inactives and how you know some of them like a fifty percent response rate or over time to get them activated. What are the secrets have you got of how to activate inactives, so to speak? Yeah. So, I mean, the first secret I have to say is that you have to do sub-segmentation within that group. So a lot of the time, you know, we've got, oh, here's our inactive people. Let's do a rescue program or something to bring them back. They're not a homogenous group. Okay. So even yeah. with the minimal data points that we have, we are able to identify multiple groups within them. Um, like I said, there's that one group who just sort of fly by, should we say, you know, you're very hard, you know, even if you didn't SMS them, you'd save quite a bit of money because they're not coming back to you. But the rest, you know, you find lots of different groups. Like I said, you might find in one group where they have competitors so you you might see them that their behavior might manifest itself in sort of uh, a, a regular sort of routine but irregular in terms of when they come to you and you've just got to infer that okay you know they 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 probably do buy a similar product but they're buying it elsewhere but you're seeing them infrequently how can we trigger them to come and that's about sending sort of right time message to make sure they come others you might find just based on like how much they spend so if they've like you know come to you and they spend quite a huge basket but they're very infrequent then you might assume again that they you know it's not that they haven't got the money to spend that they're spending it elsewhere so therefore how do you get them to to come back and spend with you so the secret really is is to segmentation is to really understand your customers don't treat them as homogenous groups i think that you know it, in the past there was a tendency to just have broad groups and they were very good when you're doing sort of marketing personas and stuff but when you're actually executing sort of the you know campaigns the crms type stuff you, you know with modern technologies and stuff you can use you know ai machine learning and stuff to sort of hyper target groups and see how they respond and then use that data to then you know retarget and make sure you get the optimal response rates um, but if but my piece of my secret source really is about really understanding that those groups of people don't see them as one homogenous group yeah absolutely as you say there is a place for the broader groups maybe in strategic positioning in the business and marketing personas to help the businesses understand the types of typologies but as you say when you get to actually wanting to actually change behavior um i like your secret sauce there sure for 
<laughs> I want to return to the discussion around psychology, actually. So um, it, it's a very fascinating, but yet so relevant as a background. So can you talk to us more from your experience, having worked on so many different loyalty programs, about the psychology behind the loyalty programs? Yeah, I mean, it, it is. I mean, like I said, I was, I'm, I, I was, I probably still am a bit skeptical that humans, um, you know, are loyal to brands. You know, the, the, they may exhibit the behaviours that we consider to be loyal, i.e., returning frequently, spending more, you know, engaging, being advocates, you know, promoting the brand. So they may exhibit that behaviour, but I wonder whether a human, like loyalties to other humans, right? Whether that can truly be um, attributed or, or assigned to a brand, but. If you look across, I mean, you know, we, like I said, we've done department stores, you know, supermarkets, airlines, uh, you know, fast food, uh, uh, coffee shops and, every, you know, everything in between. And and you find that um, you can infer why people come to a lot of those those places. Like there's discrete behaviours. It's not like everybody's random, like everybody comes to different um, uh, brands for different, you know, different reasons and stuff. If you look within a brand or even a group of brands, you find that people do have these consistent behavioral uh, clusters, I guess, you know, so they come for yeah. a purpose, they come for a mission and there's always outliers, right? You know, so for example, you know, you might, I, I might go um, shop, you know, buy coffee every morning from my favorite coffee shop, but once in a while I might have a meeting earlier or later, so I won't go to that coffee shop, I go somewhere else. So there's always those outliers, but on the whole and at a group level, because that's what we analyze, I don't try and predict individuals, I try and predict what the groups do. At the group level, what you do find is that there are sort of discrete types of behaviors that uh, people exhibit with brands and it's always fascinating because whenever I do this sort of behavioral clustering with uh, different brands uh, as we go in it's one of the first things I, I advocate they do is you, you know you come with these really nice dis discrete brands and they're well you know usually quite well um, sort of represented across all of the, the entire customer base um, and what it um, tells me about the psychology of it is that Yes, there are some people who come to you, you know, and the loyalty program probably helps a lot with that. But there are some people, and, you know, going back to the point of not having to incentivize, will come to you anyway. The loyalty program is just a bonus, okay? And it's about being smart enough to identify those that are with you because of the loyalty program or other reasons and those yeah. that are with you because of your brand strength, right? You know, um, you know and if you can do that, then it, it means that the way you communicate We'll, we'll, we'll need to reflect that. Otherwise, you, you know, if you start, um, you know, providing offer-based, uh, you know, messaging to people who are actually, they like your brand, it, it might come across a bit, you know, insulting because they think, well, I would have visited you anyway, but thanks for the offer, but I didn't yeah. really need it. Um, so, yeah, so I think, you know, one of the things about, when you look at loyalty program, fish from an analytical point of view is try to, when you do these segmentations or if you do any analysis is to understand what is the motivation for them wanting to come to this brand or this, you know, a store or, 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 or these services. Yeah. Uh, and the reason I, I get my analysts to think like that is because I say, don't forget that data at the end of the loyalty program is a person. It's not a machine doing this. Right. So those yes. people had a reason, had a reason to turn up. Um, so therefore you, you are a person. So you should know why do they, you know, come and, come up with hypotheses of why they turned up and when you do that it's actually really good because then you can provide much more color to those um, groups of people those behaviors um, and then that helps the client understand their customers better but also understand the purpose of their loyalty program as well slightly better I love what you've just said that like about the data point at the end of the day as a real live human and it reminds me I've just come back from the Comarque user group in Paris a conference with some phenomenal speakers 
And my fav, one of my favorite takeouts was around AI is not an artificial intelligence. It actually stands for augmented intelligence in the sense that if you turn your equation on its head, you were talking about the consumer as a human person, not just a data point. But actually, the human beings in your world, the analysts, they are also humans. Um, and they're working with machine learning, but they're human beings. A machine alone can't do it. And I guess that's the science and soul of what you're doing, because you're the soul of what you're doing is feeling the psychology and the, <laughs> um, you know, the human behavior versus the science, which is coding and looking just <laughs> at the data points. What do you feel about that? Like the augmented intelligence rather than artificial intelligence? I mean, I, I totally agree with that. I think there is a, a danger where we believe that, oh, we can leave everything to artificial intelligence. I think when you're dealing with humans, you need humans to understand uh, what other people want. And, you know, it's part of the marketing creative process, right? You know, if yeah. you're coming up with a, a message or, a, or a, you know, a creative or, 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 any, or even like an offer, you know, the way you position that offer, I, I find it very difficult that you could leave it to a machine. I think, yes, the, the data and stuff, the, the analysis can provide intelligence, but that intelligence needs to be augmented by humans, by our thinking process. Because don't forget, one of the things I always tell uh, my analysts and also the clients is that the definition of success is determined by us, right? It's not a machine can't tell you what good looks like, right? So your loyalty yeah. program, you have to define what good looks like. Is it that that you want incremental revenue? Is it you want to repeat behavior? Is it that you just want people to be, you know, advocates? You know, you we define that, and then the machine is trained on that definition uh, for us. So therefore, absolutely, I, I totally agree that. AI should all be about augmented intelligence. You know, the data can only get us so far. And, you know, I call it, you know, maybe descriptive and inferential uh, sort of analytics where it describes stuff and maybe it can predict and infer what will happen next. But how it happens and why it happens and, you know, should it happen should be up to us as humans. So on the other side of when we provide our insights or our data and analytics to our clients, I always emphasize this is the starting point. This is the the facts from which you build the the creative, the 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 CRM pl plan, the you know customer journeys. This is not the end goal. The data is not the end goal. It, it is a component of the foundation to how you build out the loyalty program um, and all its constituent parts. And you know the other thing I'd like to add there is also. If you do go down the route of AI and people say, oh, we can send million permutations of emails and stuff, what are you actually optimizing? Because don't forget, a lot of AI and stuff really, really rely on historical behavior. Now, if, if I've come in and I've, and I've you know, let's say a department store um, and I've always bought work clothes over time i change i become a father i mean you know i became a father i became a husband i yeah. may shop differently but if you're using historical data to always predict what i do you're, you're going to be optimizing me for the the past me not the future me and i think here this is where humans come in because we have that understanding we look at it and go hang on this guy's reaching his 30s you know early 30s he's probably gonna have a child we, we see that across our customer base anyway maybe we should just test something let's let's test selling in baby clothes or something yeah, you know yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You can see I'm not a creative, so I, I don't come <laughs> with good ideas. Um, but you know, but but that, that's why I think it should be augmented. You need people in that equation. It can't all be left to machines. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I love that. Thank you so much. Now, you, from what I know of you, and having worked with you, we started our sort of um, 
our working relationship, both of us speaking at a conference in Malaysia, and then we worked on a, one of your clients in, in Indonesia, so very much in, in Asia. But back to your role in the UK, you've done an awful lot of charity work. So, well, when I say charity work, not charity work in the old-fashioned sense, but a lot of your thinking to help the charity sector, which absolutely fascinates me. So please tell us about that, because I think it's a new angle that is perfectly logical when we talk when we think about it, but I haven't really heard it unpacked before. So please share that with us, Shawfall. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, I think when we met was five, six years, probably longer um, ago, you know, we we wanted to help the charity sector. And one of the like the angles we thought is why not use the skills that we have that we deploy to help businesses make more money, to help charities make more money. And that being data and analytics. And Amazing. so what we did is, you know, so what we did is we approached charities and say, look, you know, you know, use the skills that we have to help you because we all clearly commercial companies, large, large commercial companies pay us to help them make more money so i'm sure we could transfer that skill and and i appreciate there are some nuances obviously they're not profit driven they're you know donors donating and and there's all corporate image or there's a sort of an image they have to maintain but i think the principles are still the same if you think about it they're looking at um donors who donate money and then therefore using the analytics to understand you know like i said the, the the data is something that a human has done. So if a donor's donated because of a cause and you see them uh, repeat donate because of that cause, then you can start inferring things. You can start, you know, um, inferring their intent, so that's psychology behind it, and say maybe this type of donor donates when there's an, a disaster, right? And then you might find another type of donor donates when uh, it's helping children or another type of donor help, helps during a certain time of year, yeah. like, you know, religious uh, uh, periods. And so therefore, you, you you can sort of take the the data that um, charities collect and start building sort of similar types of analytics that you would in commercials in the commercial sector, um, and that's what we what we have done with charities. We've tried to help them uh, not only just do the analytics, but also sort of get them to build sort of similar teams. Um, so you know, like have data analysts look at data as an uh, a, a valuable asset rather than just oh we've got uh, you know a thousand ten thousand donors on our database. We're just going to email them because we've got another campaign. Look at it and say like we've got ten thousand a hundred thousand whatever donors on my to database can i group them can i segment them uh, what can i understand about them can i predict anything about them and so that's what we've tried to get charities to do and some charities like all organize like organizations so some are very forward thinking and they've adopted and that others are let's put it not so forward thinking yeah. and, it's, and it's been a longer journey but what has been interesting is that you sort of find that the, the skills or the approach and the analytical approach are very similar you know i've always found that yes data has nuances but data is data right um and if you collect good quality data, and charities seem to do collect good quality data, uh, whether it's for audit purposes or, or whatever regulatory requirements, um, you can do quite a lot of analytics on it. And I think that is a massive opportunity for donors because you can imagine, you know, as as people's cost as cost of living rises, people's incomes are squeezed. So therefore, yeah. being smarter with who you target, how you target, and even the type of messaging you sent them, you know, could be very powerful. So yeah, so that's what we've been sort of trying to help in the charity sector. It's sort of bonus work that, that we do we, we sort of go out and and use the, the skills that we have in in the team to help help those um organizations i love that i mean obviously because it's giving back but it's just so logical what you've said so <laughs> it's it's fantastic to hear and lovely to hear your company's doing that for for a sector that i'm sure doesn't often get that kind of approach so it's just lovely thank you for sharing that 
Um, what I wanted to ask without you giving away anything you can't give away, because I respect that, because obviously you've got client confidentiality. But if you think about all of your clients over the many years you've been working so specifically in the data in the commercial sector, how many of them would you say are doing using data well versus not at all or not at all well, um, if you put it in percentage terms. I think it's quite interesting to see how the marketplace is in terms yeah, so, of good data usage. Yeah, I mean, so this is obviously, you know, biased by the, the clients that I've worked with. But, you know, I mean, I've, I've also met a lot of clients in this space. I would, I would put that number around 15%, maybe 20, who do it. Uh, well you know so they, okay. they've got their data they've got it all connected it's you know uh the systems work really well and going into those clients is really really a nice experience because it's just literally oh yeah you want access to data here you go here's a login um yeah we have all <laughs> our we have all we have all our definition but like i said they're about 15 to 20 percent and they it's not that they're always the big ones. I mean, I have met a few small ones, but they are usually the, the larger companies, if that makes sense, yeah. because they've they've already got like an enterprise data warehouse. They've got that the governance in place and everything. So when they must have when they launched the loyalty program or the CRM program, they they they've had that thinking, so they've been able to deploy it. But saying that, you know, there is probably around sixty percent of clients who are okay okay there's like huge room of improvement they're the bulk of the clients that we we yeah. come across the disjointed systems um you know not not connected at all they've not done the basics in terms of analytics um, i mean you know some of them are just doing reporting you know they've sort of taken loyalty and just translated what they've done in sort of the corporate world of just management information and business intelligence and applied it to uh, the loyalty program where they're just reporting on the loyalty program rather than using that data intelligently but like i said that's about uh about two-thirds of them i mean just slightly probably less to two-thirds but yeah around that around that number and they're the clients who usually come to us because they they are stuck, if that makes sense. So they've they've got like a team of analysts, but because they kept doing it the way they've done it, they they can't sort of break out of that, um, and they sort of come to us. And then we see probably another like I would I'll split this group up the bottom tier. So there's ten percent who really like they've got their data it may not be connected but they're enthusiastic they just don't know what yeah. to do with it you know they don't know what to do with it and they're usually companies where they've like you know everybody said let's do a loyalty program so there's a loyalty program and they've got data sitting in the loyalty pro providers platform it doesn't speak to you know other systems and we've gone in and the, the enthusiasm is there that they want to do something with data but they haven't really started but then you get the probably less than 10% and they're still around who still don't know what to do with data. I mean, even if they run a loyalty program, I, I, I am really, really shocked. So they'll, they would have got an agency just to like, you know, do the loyalty stuff, you know, the marketing, the CRM and, and report campaign reporting and stuff, but they don't really take it seriously. And when you, when, when we do engage with those clients, that, that, that sort of 10% or less, it is, it is, mainly an education journey you have yeah. to educate them of why they need to use data if you go in and start doing all this analysis you know there's there's an initial excitement but it doesn't embed because they don't have the culture of data um, and so i find that whenever i work in these organizations and i ask them what have they done historically where are they now and typically they just have financial reports and performance reports um, and like i said they have agencies supplying them everything else i realize that if we go in and do anything it won't stick it'll be a one-off so i sort of try and work with the senior management trying to embed 
a data data informed or data driven culture in them so they can see why they need that data and it is a case of literally saying look if we were to build this report this is why you would need this number this will help your marketing team acquire more people this will help your loyalty team you know target the right people this will help this you know the, the loyalty team um, get repeat visits and it's literally about breaking it and then showing this is where ROI would come in and you could measure it all through um, but yeah so that's how I do that's how I do it just on that that big bulk of clients who do it okay there is a subset of those clients probably uh, i would say if it's 60 percent, they're probably around 15 percent yeah quarter of that yeah. where where they have really good pockets of excellence you know like there'll be a team who do it really well like they, they might have an analytics team or product team who do it really well and then their loyalty team aren't doing it well and it's really interesting because you can see that the the company can do stuff really well but they haven't translated that skill over yeah um, and 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 you know and you feel redundant being asked to come in and help the, the the marketing or the loyalty team when you know that they've got a really capable product analytics team who are doing these fantastic things within the organization but listening to you, sure, for what it sounds like, particularly in that 15% subset of the 60% and then the, the lower tiers, if we call yeah. it tiers, yeah. your role becomes much more of a change management role. So <laughs> less of the data analytics, but much more around change management, which at the end of the day, I feel is a lot of the role we have to play with clients to to really help them through this because it, it, you know as super as a data analytics team might be or or even the loyalty team if they can't actually get it to stick with senior management or buying groups if we're talking about retail or mm. uh, product houses if we're talking about financial services it actually won't stick for the long term so I totally hear you and I totally understand that. Yeah, and and, and you're right. I mean, in terms of like the, the change management, it, it is, you know, as an, an analyst or, or running an analytics company, do not underestimate that. I mean, a lot of the time, like, you know, my, my analysts say, but if we do something amazing, they'll 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 love it and they'll they'll use it. And I'm like, but again, this is going back to the psychology, and I deploy my knowledge of psychology even when I'm working with clients. So I'm just giving away a bit of secret here that my with my clients that I do sort of look at it from a psychology point of view is that don't forget the client themselves are humans right they yeah. they have they have priorities they, they're busy you know your work may be one percent five percent of everything they have to do right you know um you know especially if you're presenting to the c-suite the directors you know the cmo's got other things to worry about he's not just going to worry about what uh, you know analysis you've done in your in the loyalty program so you have to you know understand that they're also people and they have you know priorities they have goals they have uh, ambitions and how can we help them do that and and that's when you know when, when, when we do go in to do the change management is to understand that is to understand if we did this piece of work would it help you okay because if it doesn't help you then what can we do to help you right because it may be that it's you know the starting point is not doing the analytics and the loyalty or building some kind of sophisticated propensity model the basics might be that the cmo just wants to know every day how many customers are using the loyalty program and it could be as simple as that and he could be like look, if i get that number at least i'm reassured that the loyalty program is of value rather than go off and build some propensity model that he he can't see an immediate benefit to him or her yeah absolutely absolutely and I think that's listening to you how you have got a rare skill here Shawfall that you've got this science and soul because most analysts maybe don't have that insight that you're bringing in from your psychology background so uh, all kudos to you it's great to hear you talk about it again I mean that's how I first met when you were talking about it at a conference um last uh not quite my last question but um 
what would you, if you wanted to guide a, a listener to the show, the Let's Talk Loyalty show, how can they really take their data to the max? I like give them a golden nugget. You've given us a few secret sources along this discussion. <laughs> give us one more golden nugget, how to really maximize their data usage. Yeah, so, I mean, there is no like one thing, but if, if I was to say a process that they could use to maximize their data is the first thing is, if you are using your data, you should always have done an audit on the data because you will be surprised that there are so many uh, nuances in the data that it's not agreed across the business. So even if you take some, I mean, I'm working with a recent client and we're taking revenue as, as a value. There's about three or four uh, variables in their database that says revenue actually says revenue on it. Um, and, and they're all calculated differently because they're used by different parts of the business. So the first thing is, you know, when you, when you look at your data, try and do some kind of informal, you don't have to be formal, it can be an informal order of the data and make sure that the business agrees on those terms. Because if you don't agree what the numbers mean, whatever you produce afterwards is meaningless. And you find that with loyalty program, like people talk about, Oh, can we measure incremental revenue? And, if you don't understand what revenue is, how are you going to calculate incremental? What is revenue? Is it minus refunds? Is it including discounts? Yeah. Is it excluding offers? You know, what is revenue? And you've got to agree that. And you find that these are the things that are really overlooked. And if you get that right, A, especially if you're the analytical team or if you're the, the person running an analytical team, you get a lot of credibility and trust because people know that you're thorough, you're robust, you pay attention uh, to detail. And then the second thing I always say is, if a lot of businesses look at their data from a product lens, how many of this have I sold? How many of that have I sold? Or how many stores have sold this? So it's very much from their business lens, product lens. I always say, look, to do data well, see it from the consumer lens, from the customer lens, right? So try and connect your data based on a customer, not based on the business's view of the, of the world, which is typically products or services. Uh, and you'll see, you know, if you go into companies and you look at their reports, a lot of it's around, we've sold this many products, we've sold this many services. I always say, no, no, re-look re re at that data and look at it from a customer. And I think as soon as businesses start start to do that, they will get maximum value from their cust uh, from their data because don't forget a product is only the the, the number of products sold is is um, an artifact of the customers buying that product a product doesn't sell on its own a customer has to buy the product in order for the product to yeah. increase in number of counts so if you don't see it from the customer point of view you don't know how that product is being generated and you'll find interesting things for example you might find there's a subset of uh, customers who only buy this product so even though it looks like this product is really a high selling product it could actually be a very small number of customers that buy it and so therefore you've got a mass of customers who aren't buying that product and you've got to ask yourself why and secondly if that group who's buying that product if they move on i won't be selling that product anymore um so understanding it from a customer lens i think is where you drive most of the value but i think but i think like i said before you need to do those audit type exercises to make sure you're all aligned you know we used to talk about single source of truth amanda do you remember in the days that we needed the single source of truth so that we all, were all aligned on it um and then secondly see it from a single you know a customer lens it doesn't necessarily mean that you need a single customer view it's sometimes very hard to create single customer views but just to see your data from a customer lens i think will give you ma maximum value from your data Love it. I mean, um, I remember in my, in my retailing days, the absolute success of getting the corporate board KPIs to include a customer KPI rather than just product sales KPIs mm. was probably 
one of the most fundamental days of my retailing <laughs> career. I loved it so much when the board went, right, we're going to actually report on a monthly basis on customer KPIs, not just sales, product sales. So thank you for explaining that to everyone. Surefall, I could talk to you all day long. I've utterly enjoyed connecting with you again and utterly enjoyed this discussion. So unfortunately, we can't talk for too much longer because our time is running out. So as I bring our, our discussion to a close, is there anything else you'd like to share with the listeners of Let's Talk Loyalty? Um, yes. I mean, like I said, I mean, you probably talk to people who are the loyalty practitioners and I'm more from the data part of you. So I, I, what I would say to both sides, the data and the practitioner side, is that get the the analysts to actually be part of um, what you do with the customers. Okay, so whether it's how you design the loyalty program, how, whether it's you execute the communications, what offers you give, because I think a lot of the time analysts are used just to generate the number and they go, oh, here's the number. And then the people who are the practitioners take that number and, and do it. I think having an analyst in the room or in, in the discussion uh, can be very beneficial. Where I have been able to you know, have analysts involved in the discussion, they provide a different perspective. Uh, and I think a lot of businesses, especially if they're running loyalty program, could benefit from that perspective. So don't just treat your analyst as someone who's going to provide you numbers. Try and think of your analyst as someone who can also provide ideas and inputs to your actual program itself. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you very, very much. And thank you for making the time to talk to us. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Thanks, Shawful. No problem, Amanda. And it's been a pleasure to talk to you too. This show is brought to you by the Australian Loyalty Association, the leading organization for loyalty professionals in Asia Pacific. Visit their news and content hub for the latest loyalty insights from around the world. Or why not submit your own article for publication? For more information on their loyalty services and networking opportunities, visit AustralianLoyaltyAssociation.com. so much for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Loyalty. If you'd like us to send you the latest shows each week, simply sign up for the Let's Talk Loyalty newsletter on letstalkloyalty.com and we'll send our best episodes straight to your inbox. And don't forget that you can follow Let's Talk Loyalty on any of your favorite podcast platforms. And of course, we'd love for you to share your feedback and reviews. Thanks again for supporting the show.